Nature's Archive Podcast, a Jumpstart Nature production. Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative nature advocates and naturalists on the planet. If you have a fascination with nature and ecology, this podcast is for you. I create this podcast as a personal passion, and I'm working hard to turn Nature's Archive into something even bigger. If you enjoy the show, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on your favorite podcast service, and share this episode with a friend. And as I look to expand and improve my offerings, please also consider becoming a patron through Patreon. You'll get special perks like stickers, exclusive content, and more. The link is in the show notes. Thank you. Highways, roadways, and railways isolate animals, prevent them from reaching needed food and water, cause genetic isolation, and make populations vulnerable to natural disasters. And as you'll hear today, the impacts go much deeper and sometimes in surprising directions. But wildlife crossings go a long way towards mitigating this damage. Today, my guest Beth Pratt of the National Wildlife Federation and Save LA Cougars tells the astonishing story of how a Los Angeles mountain lion named P-22 triggered a cascade of support leading to one of the most ambitious wildlife crossings ever conceived. This crossing, called the Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing at Liberty Canyon, is about to break ground over the 10-lane US-101 highway. Beth tells us how P-22, with support from amazing people like Beth, helped the second largest city in the United States wake up to the fact that we need to find a way to coexist with nature. And we also discuss some of the nuts and bolts of wildlife crossing design. For example, she discusses the pros and cons of overpass crossings versus tunnels and culverts, and how design can be used to influence animals to use the crossings. And of course, the specific wildlife protection goals influence the design too. Beth also describes many surprising ways that wildlife crossings help improve ecosystems and the food web. Even plants need connectivity, and some bird species are negatively impacted by highways, and these crossings aim to help. A bit more about Beth Pratt. Beth has over 25 years' experience in environmental leadership and is currently the executive director of the California region for the National Wildlife Federation. Beth previously served as vice president and chief financial officer at the Yosemite Conservancy and also serves on the board of Outdoor Afro. And if that wasn't enough, Beth authored the book When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors, which was highly influential in my progression as a nature advocate. Beth and her work have frequently been featured in the media, including a recent piece in the LA Times. You can find Beth online at bethpratt.com, on Twitter at Beth Pratt, and on Facebook at Beth Pratt One. That's the number one. And of course, you can also find P22, the talented mountain lion that he is, on Twitter at P22 of Hollywood and Facebook at P22 Mountain Lion of Hollywood. And be sure to check out the show notes for links to everything I just mentioned, but also for a photo of P22 and a wonderful visualization of the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing. So without further delay, Beth Pratt. Beth, thank you for joining me today. It is a pleasure to be here. I'm always happy to talk with you, Michael, about uh, wildlife cougars or whatever we want, <laughs> whatever we want to discuss. <laughs> yeah, and I think it'll be a fun discussion today. Before we get into the core of the discussion, can you just tell me a little bit about yourself? Where are you at? What do you do? And how did you get interested in nature? Boy, yeah. How we get interested in nature could probably take up the whole talk with all my childhood stories. But where I'm coming to you from, I uh, live outside Yosemite National Park in the foothills. And I've worked in Yosemite for almost a decade, worked in Yellowstone. So most of my you know, background has been working in these sort of traditional remote wilderness national parks. But what I do now is mostly urban wildlife focused in LA and the most improbable places to 
do mountain lion conservation. <laughs> but yeah, I have a dream job. I am the regional executive director for the National Wildlife Federation for California. It's a national group. You might remember Ranger Rick growing up. I read it growing up. Ranger Rick is still a magazine, still a thing, but we do conservation work all over the U.S. I only oversee the California work, which is the greatest state to oversee conservation work in. Of course, we do wonderful stuff for wildlife here. Not perfect, but we we really do lead the way, I think. And I get to oversee all the work in California, but I know we're going to talk about the wildlife crossing. That's really kept me busy, but it's just been such an amazing project to work on. To your question, how I get interested in nature, I don't know if it's just embedded in my DNA. I think part of it is... My parents were, I wouldn't call them environmentalists, but they loved wildlife. They loved animals. We always had a full array of pets. You're going to hear one of my five dogs barking, I'm sure, at some point in this in the background, or my cat's going to walk across the screen. But we just always had a love of wildlife and the outdoors. I grew up in Massachusetts and my earliest memories is walking on Cape Cod and seeing horseshoe crabs. That was one big animal for me that really got me interested. We'd go whale watching or actually when a a dead whale would wash up on the beach, my dad always loved to go see those, which actually was cool, although it was a little you know morbid. But to be able to see a whale up close like that, you usually don't get to even one that, you know, had passed on. Just always was surrounded by nature. And, and felt always more comfortable in it. I didn't have a lot of nature in some respects. I had great woods. I grew up in the suburb of Boston called Garden City. It was a traditional suburb, but we had this woods. But at that time, the wildlife was not abundant. It was a period where it had been banished, right? So the best I could do was frogs and birds and an occasional turtle and a squirrel. Now, if you go back, what I love is there's bobcats and coyotes and deer and everything that got banished at the time has returned. And I will add the animal that I think was really the gateway animal for me was frogs. I think frogs are the gateway animal for many people. I mean, they are. Almost everybody sees them. They're non-threatening and they're adorable, right? People love watching their antics. So it's a great sort of first animal to introduce you to the wonder of the wild world. And they're amazing. But for me, seeing anything bigger than a squirrel just wasn't going to happen. So frogs are sort of that animal that I had access to that was everywhere. And that uh, I think really started me off as not just as lover of nature, but as a scientist. As you alluded to, we're going to talk a little bit about wildlife crossings. And you also mentioned that somehow your job led you to LA and some urban wildlife. Tell me a bit about how that happened. Uh, I I mean, just foreshadowing a bit, we're going to talk about P-22, a mountain lion. How did P-22 come onto your radar? Yeah. Yeah. It's just one of those, like, what happened? I mean, if you had told me a, a decade ago, I would have shifted from doing conservation or environmental work in these national parks that I grew up revering to LA, I would have laughed at you. What? There's wildlife in LA and LA's smog and concrete. There's, you know, why would you even do conservation there? And it's just been such an incredibly rich transformation for me to have to change my thinking. I'm originally from Massachusetts, but I call myself Bostonian by birth and California is my adopted state. I love California. I am passionate about California. So I've been here 32 years. Like any good Northern Californian, you are snobbish about LA. I probably before P22 had been down there, not even a half a dozen times. So 
I had started in 2011 writing a book about California wildlife as part of my job. And uh, there was one of the wildlife in my area, (laughs) one of my dogs. But I had started writing this book about California wildlife, and it was meant more as sort of a survey of California wildlife. And it turned into the P22 show. He became the cover. But as part of that, I was researching and this story in the LA Times popped up in 2012, right after they had discovered he was in the park. He wasn't even a celebrity that much, so more a local fascination at the time. The headline didn't even name him. It just said, Mountain Lion makes a home in Griffith Park. And I was like, what? I mean, I didn't believe it. Fake news was not a term at the time, but if it had been, I would have said that's fake news But I got on the phone and was able to talk to Jeff Sikich, the incredible biologist who has since become a a good friend, who was studying P-22, and he offered to give me a tour. So I drove down to L.A. I didn't even know Griffith Park what it was. I mean, that you had this incredible wilderness park, not on the outskirts of L.A., but in the middle of it was just such so eye-opening and that it it had enough habitat for a mountain lion. I mean, I'll challenge any other city in the country. To, even San Francisco doesn't have enough habitat to hold a mountain lion full-time. So, And just to jump in, it's, I think, even more surprising when you think about LA is the city that decided to pave over their river. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is why I feel like part of my job is to dispel notions about LA. Some of the myths are true, but I have to say they have since started redeeming themselves after paving over their river. I really think they are paving the way for this new sort of coexistence ethic in a way that I don't think any other city has. For me, it's I'm now like LA's biggest champion, which again, 10 years ago, you could have knocked me over the stick if thinking that I, I might've been that. But yeah, and that was part of my personal, I had to give up my personal biases. And that's what I love about science. When you have data that stands against your beliefs, you got to give up those beliefs. So that day, when Jeff was giving me a tour, we're in Griffith Park, and I'm just incredulous. I'm looking around, what? I mean, oh my God, there's pony rides and people are playing golf and there's the Hollywood sign and there's the observatory. But first I really was going with those biases. He shouldn't be here because I came up in the School of Conservation 30 years ago, where you put the wildlife in places like Yosemite and you put the people in places like LA and never the two should meet. And we've done our job. What really hit me that day is both scientifically and socially, that just doesn't hold up anymore. And after Jeff was telling me about the plight of P-22 and the plight of all his mountain lion relatives in the Santa Monica Mountains, the Santa Monica Mountains runs right into Griffith Park. It's the terminus. I just had one of those really moments of having to challenge myself. And it's like, well, wait a minute, he should be here in this park. Who am I to say he shouldn't? And why are we giving up our human spaces as irredeemable for wildlife? And then obviously the science really is showing we can't. We we have to not, might not be perfect nature like a Yosemite, but we need to start making way for wildlife in places like LA or our backyards, or they're not going to have a future. At the end of that tour that Jeff Sikich gave me, I was just so blown away. He told me about not just the plight of P-22 and how he was trapped by freeways, but the entire population of these mountain lions in the Santa Monica Mountains and how they were at risk of extinction because of the genetic isolation these freeways bring. So I I just said, Jeff, how can I help with my organization, the National Wildlife Federation? And he he turned to me like 
almost offhandedly, well, you know, there's this little wildlife crossing we're trying to get built. And I just remember thinking, how hard can it be, right? Not knowing it would take a decade of my life and be an $87 million project. But I remember thinking quite solidly, like when he told me they were at risk of extinction, I just remember thinking, not on my watch. This is a problem we can solve. So let's solve it. I I don't want these mountain lions to go extinct on my watch. And uh, here we are. So there's a couple different things I want to dig into a little bit. One, the stereotypical view I think a lot of people have of mountain lions in urban areas is of the hiker or the mountain biker or the little kid getting attacked, which is exceedingly rare. And P-22 has really turned into a celebrity in LA. So I'm wondering, how did that transformation happen going against the grain of what you often see among the general public and media? I think it gets back to why I said I have the dream job in California. There's a base value system in California. Not everybody shares it, but the majority do that wildlife should be here despite the risks. And the risks are so low. I mean, I'll get into that in a minute, but California values its wildlife so much that mountain lions are especially protected species. We're the only state in the country where they can't be hunted for sport. And that was by the voters, Prop 117 in 1990. It was a a ballot measure that people said, you know what, we value these animals as part of our wild heritage and we want them here. So I think there's just a value system in California that looks at wildlife perhaps differently in other areas. So in some respects, LA was predisposed to coexist with P22 in, you know, the middle of the city. I also think it's that people love of having this connection. You look at these sightings of P-22. I mean, it just made headlines recently. He performed what I consider an Olympic balance beam feat. He he would win the Olympic gymnastics competition. He got caught on video leaping onto this like six inch sort of fence ledge, nailed a perfect landing. People share these with me celebrating, not fear. Not They're not fearful he's in their backyard. It's like having the Brad Pitt of the cougar world. If Brad Pitt showed up in your neighborhood, you would post and be like, yay. And that's what I, I love is people, for the most part, celebrate. It's, it's sort of a badge of honor if he shows up in your backyard outside of Griffith Park. I think it is that people value these wild connections and that most people do put the risk in perspective. And that's what I ask people to do. I can't say P-22 will never attack anybody. I mean, knock on wood, he's a wild animal. Wild animals are wild. They are unpredictable. I mean, people are, right? You can't walk down a city street and don't know if you'll get mugged or not. My dogs, I can't say they'll never bite anybody, even though they're the most love bug cuddlers on the planet. So I think with all these things, it's just about putting the risk in perspective. We still walk down city streets, even though there's a potential to get mugged, even though it's pretty low. And it's the same with mountain lions. Mountain lions in the last hundred years in California, I think there's about 20 recorded attacks. Six of those have been fatal. And listen, those are not just statistics. Those are people um, that have been killed. So we don't want to diminish it. We never want it to happen. But again, we take risks every day. And the risk of mountain lions are so low compared to things we do driving. I'm going to die on the 101. In (laughs) California, we have uh, 3,000 to 4,000 deaths every year on our freeways. So that's really, if you are worried about well-being, it's not mountain lions you should be worried about. It's our cars. Again, 40 million people in California, 100 years 20 attacks. That is just, you're going to be struck by lightning more than you're going to get mountain lion. So that's all I ask people to not fear, respect. They are wild animals. The, the risk is not zero, 
I mean, but it's close to zero and just try to put the risk in perspective and also do things to help the wildlife like P-22 be successful. But I think if P-22 shows anything, it's that these animals were not on their menu. You know, they're not waiting in the woods at every moment ready to leap out at us. In fact, one of my favorite photo series, there's, of course, cameras all around Griffith Park capturing P-22 now, is of five or six in the morning and P-22, for some reason, sitting right near one of the cameras. So it's kind of blasting photos at him. It's still dark. And then you see him move about like 10 feet. You can still sort of see, I think, his tail or something. And all of a sudden, this jogger goes by. The jogger had no idea there was a mountain lion there. And I think most of us, we've lived with mountain lions all our lives. We just didn't know it. We just now have these technologies to show us they're in our backyards, but they've always been here. So uh, just try to respect them, try to celebrate these sightings, do safe things and don't fear. The risk is so low. Yeah. Over here in the Bay Area, there's a project, I think out of UC Santa Cruz called the Puma Project. Yeah. And, And they've collared some mountain lions. You can see where they go occasionally in urban areas. And yeah, you think of all the times that they would have had a chance to be aggressive that they just, they don't take. And that demonstrates your point. And I, in fact, had a a very close interaction with a mountain lion on a hike one time where I think we, we scared each other is what happened. (laughs) And the mountain lion, I think was just playing, like chasing something in a steep hillside grassland and very steep. So my visibility was poor. Its visibility was poor. And it just jumped down on the trail right in front of me, like 10 feet in front of me. And looked at me, I looked at it, and then it was over the edge of the hillside and down and off. And I kind of crept up to the edge and peeked over, like, is this thing still there? And it was already 100 meters away. It turned around, looked at me, and uh, and then turned back and went off. on its way. Yeah. You demonstrate it. They are more afraid of us. In fact, the, I think, was it Santa Cruz who did the study? Like, they played human voices and uh, right. they just fled, right? And I, in, in you rather, you illustrate another point is that. People often mistake mountain lion behavior like something that is stalking. Mountain lions uh, are, listen, if you're being stalked by a mountain lion, you're not going to know it. They are stealth predators, okay? So if they're watching you and they see you, they're probably trying to figure out if you're, like, going to hurt them and trying to, like, assess the situation. And if they are following you, it's probably because they want to keep you in sight to make sure you're not going to harm them. So. If people learn a little bit more about mountain lion behavior, I think some of that fear can go away. And also will give you the tools if you do have an encounter, how to make sure it ends successfully. I think the other example, that jogger where the mother mountain lion, remember that video that went viral where the mother mountain lion starts bluff charging him. Again, I was really trying to dispel the headlines. Like they were all saying, escapes death. That guy was in no danger. That mountain lion could have taken him out in two seconds. She was doing everything she could to avoid an encounter. She was telling him to go Mm -hmm. away. And I have to give him some credit, except for the initial mistake he made, which was approaching the kittens, which, of course, any mother is going to try to protect. He did pretty good after that, trying to keep her in sight, not running. And she was like, it's almost like she had the human playbook, what to do to avoid having to resort to lethal measures, right? Much like we do. Um, She was trying to tell him to go away. So I think that, yeah, keeping in mind, like you said, they really are trying to avoid us and doing everything they can to avoid a conflicting encounter. But yeah, learn to me, I call it reading the wildlife weather. If you can learn more, because if you aren't a biologist, of course, a 130 pound cat snarling at you is probably scary. 
But I have to say, if, if a mountain lion is snarling at you, you're probably not in danger. They're probably telling you, please go away. <laughs> right. They aren't using their stealth ability at that point, which is exactly. what they would use if they were hunting. Ex- exactly. Yep. So you mentioned your book, When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors. That book was recommended to me a few years ago, and I bought it and read it and really enjoyed it. And the context was I was looking to make a career change and had taken a field ecology class. And I asked my ecology professor, who can I volunteer with? What organizations are around? How can I start learning? And and she recommended that book. And so that was really instrumental in my progression. I probably wouldn't be doing this podcast right now if it weren't for your book. That was really a, a trigger point, I think, for me. So thank you. Wow, Michael, that's, I mean... Thank you. I mean, I think there's no greater compliment to an author than to instill some sort of change, whether it be personal or or global. And I'm so excited you did make that change. I mean, just in our talks already, I can tell how passionate you are about wildlife and conservation. I'm excited for you. (laughs) Yeah, I can't wait to start to actually execute on some of the plans I have. Yeah. So so, uh, circling back then to the crossing, it's generally known as Liberty Canyon Crossing, can you tell Wallace, me? It's now the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing. Oh. And we can't thank, yes, that is what we called it for years, obviously. It's in Liberty Canyon, but I can't thank Wallace Annenberg and the Annenberg Foundation enough for their 25 million donation and prior donations. They had got us started with a million and have uh, been just supportive since the beginning of this crazy idea. Which So in honor of that, it is now the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing. That's great. They've done a lot for uh, conservation efforts. I, I know they have a track record of gifts and I think explore.org. There's a, a few things I think that are all. Yes, that's by, theirs. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, no, I can't say enough good things. Uh, they've just, I walk into their office with this crazy idea, which at the time we didn't even know, <laughs> we had no plan, you know, no blueprints, nothing. It was like, we need to do this. And Wallace and, and Cindy Kennard, the executive director, just, yep, you're right. I mean, they just saw the vision early on for what this could be. We wouldn't be here without them. Hey, nature enthusiast, do you want to be part of something bigger? Well, we're building a movement at Jumpstart Nature, and we've just added some new volunteers to help with our podcast and website. But this means our costs are going up too. I need to purchase software licenses to give them access to the production tools we use. For example, one media editing license costs $21 a month. And this is where you come in. Please consider supporting our mission by contributing to Jumpstart Nature through our Patreon or direct contributions, or even purchasing some logo merch. Check out all these options at jumpstartnature.com slash donate, also linked in the show notes. Not ready to make a financial contribution? Then please share this episode with three friends. Sharing what we do is actually one of the very best ways you can help us. Thank you all for your continued support. So let's talk about it. Just maybe 10,000 foot view, where it's located, how big is it? Yeah, it's a great time to be talking about it because, wow, I mean, we're just, we're at the finish line. I'm a bit dizzy. I mean, I'm not going to totally relax till Governor Newsom puts that shovel in the ground at the groundbreaking, but I just, I can't believe where we're at at this point. We're about to break ground. We're almost fully funded, not total, but we have enough to break ground. This thing's going out to bid shortly. Wow. These mountain lions are going to have a future. But yeah, the project itself, to take a step back, the project is located in on the 101 freeway in a place called Agora Hills. You might not recognize that name, but of course, 
course, now it's going to be on the map globally, but you probably recognize like Calabasas where the Kardashians live and stuff, but it's in the Santa Monica mountains, about 30 miles west of LA. And it's a very urbanized area. LA is the second largest city in the country. But if you look at the, what I think the census calls the LA metropolitan area, that is the most densely populated area in the country, but they also have a ton of open space. I mean, a lot more than you expect. You can get some Yosemite sort of wilderness hikes in the Santa Monica Mountains. So they did a really good job. The Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy, the the National Park Service with the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreation Area of preserving open space within that area. So there's a lot of open space to support wildlife populations. The problem is it's not connected because of these freeways and roads and, and human development as well. The National Park Service started doing this mountain lion study uh, actually 20 years ago now. And I, I can stop saying almost 20 years ago, 20, 2002 is when they started. And now we're in 2022. They had been studying wildlife and other entities have been studying wildlife before that and starting to see some of these signs, but it was really starting to collar these mountain lions, which are the most territory needy, that started raising the alarm bell, which is, okay, something's going on here genetically because these cats can't get out. So the 101 sort of runs, the Santa Monica Mountains are south of the 101. And it literally cuts off the Santa Monica Mountains from the rest of the world because below it is the Pacific Ocean and pretty much rings it. So for the first time in its evolutionary history, Santa Monica Mountain had had been isolated once that 101 got put up. And it's a mega freeway. Like this is not a two lane road. This is one of the busiest freeways in the world. 10 lanes of pavement, 300 to 400,000 cars a day go by Liberty Canyon. So it is an impenetrable barrier. I have stood at that freeway at 2 a.m. and would not cross. There's still so much traffic. So in this pinch point at Liberty Canyon is actually the last 1,600 feet you could even put a wildlife crossing in the entire region. Because one of the biggest things you have to put in a crossing to make it successful is protected space on both sides of it. So if you put a crossing and you just drop them down into a target, it's not going to work, right? If you look at a map, it sort of funnels down to this last 1600 feet and then funnels back up. Once you get them across, again, there's plenty of open space. So that's where it's going to go. And that's the the why this location. Mm -hmm. But I think you had some questions about design too, right, Michael? Yeah, I guess a, a couple of things. When you envision a crossing, I think maybe the first thing that comes to mind would be something like an overpass you might see of another road. But mm-hmm. there are special design considerations to attract the wildlife in the first place. So the, the, I guess the two questions I have is, what do you do to make that crossing look appealing to animals? And we've been focused so much on the mountain lions. I'm assuming that there are other considerations beyond mountain lions as well, other animals, other maybe even insects and plants that that, that you want to make sure have connectivity to. Yeah, those are really good questions. And I think it gets at like, how do you design a wildlife crossing? And the there's what's great is there's decades of wildlife crossing science now. And they are, I mean, these things across the globe are largely successful. You're talking 80, 90% success rates. They, they reduce vehicle mortality, I mean, everything, right? But it's interesting. We're also setting some science in that we're building a wildlife crossing so that 
the big stuff can get across the road, like the mountain lions, but we actually don't get a lot of roadkill at Liberty Canyon because it's such a barrier, right? So roadkill is a, a, a really good indicator of where you need crossings, but lack of roadkill can be just as important an indicator, meaning they're avoiding it. And so when you design a wildlife crossing, one of the things is to keep in mind is the goal. What is the goal? What is the need here? And our need is very different, I would say. I can't find a precedent for this. Most of the crossings are great. I'm not, I mean, it's, they're just different. Again, they had a different project goal. They need to get wildlife crossing across the road to prevent roadkill. Like the one in Utah, I love Parley's Canyon. I visited it. They have great videos of the wildlife. They were preventing what they call slaughter alley there. Literally it had a nickname, that stretcher road, but you'll see the top of their crossing is very different. It's gravel. It's, it's not a natural landscape because that's all they needed. They just need to get the wildlife across the road. If you didn't put that crossing in with the animals there go extinct, the deer, or, uh, probably not. They just keep getting killed, which is bad, but still you're not talking about sort of the extinction of a species or is an entire ecosystem cut off because of that road? No. And that's what I think makes Liberty Canyon a little different. What we're doing here, yes, the mountain lions are most imminently at risk. And so that is a huge design consideration, but we took a more global look given what the science is showing. And the science is also showing the genetic isolation of lizards and birds. So this was a whole scale ecosystem approach that literally is going to have everything that should be in that ecosystem on top. It's going to be sort of a, as our Robert Rock, one of the architects working on it, calls it a green roof on steroids. I think a lot of us know about green roofs. So we're going to have a living functioning ecosystem on top. So not only will animals cross it, but you're going to have lizards and birds and, and butterflies living on top of it. And it's specifically being designed for that. I also want to add in plants. Listen, I'm not a big uh, flora person. You know, I, I can't keep as much in my brain, but you know, what I've learned from this with climate change and drought not only do wildlife need connectivity to be resilient, but so do plants. They need, for dispersal reasons, the same genetic flexibility, for lack of a better word, that wildlife needs. So this really is more a whole-scale ecosystem connection, which I hope more will follow suit after this. And that's the design considerations. But to get in the weeds a little bit, if you were just designing for animals, there's just lots of considerations. We looked at a tunnel early on. One of the reasons we ruled out a tunnel was not every animal will use tunnels. Deer won't use it. Deer will use underpasses, but when you talk about a, a dark tunnel under 10 lanes of freeway, not all wildlife will use it. That sounds scary for a deer. Yeah, exactly. To them, they don't like to get backed into spaces that are dark where they can't see. Plus, you wouldn't be able to vegetate it. It's going to be a, a dark tunnel. So you take the, the connecting it for plants. Uh, so a tunnel left a lot of wildlife off the table. Also, what was interesting is it was likely going to be more expensive. Caltrans looked at it as part of the feasibility study. And I will dazzle you with some Caltrans terms. I've had to learn a lot about engineering and, and transportation projects, but they would have had to do, a, they can't drill the size tunnel they need for wildlife under the freeway. And they'd have to do what they call a cut and cover, which is actually cut open the 101 and lower a mold in. No way. I, we would lose all support for this project if we had to shut down the 101. So that got ruled out. So again, just, we had, and listen, this wasn't me making this decision. We had wildlife crossings for experts from all over the world come out and do site tours, assess 
where was the best location? What was the best solution? And they kept coming back to Liberty and an overpass is, is the thing that's going to do it. But if you look at other areas, like if you have roads, deer will use short roads if you have light underpasses and so will other animals. You look at the Banff crossing, those are overpasses that wildlife of all species use. So it really is how you design these getting at the project goal. And then your last question, how do you get the wildlife to use it? Unfortunately, yeah, you just can't put up a sign wildlife crossing here. But actually, it it does become a sign. I mean, I, I like to say the wildlife themselves are really smart. They don't want to cross our roads. And once they find it, once sort of world gets out in the animal world, and it does. I mean, that those were friends of mine. Again, Pathways for Wildlife, Tanya Diamond. That video of the badger and the coyote sort of working together. That is what happens, right? Wildlife. And that was, that's just two miles, maybe three miles away from my house here where that video was taken. Isn't that great? You had that wonderful tale. It's, you know, it does sort of that, this sort of cooperation or at least communication is going to get out in the animal world, but also we design things. And this is where the science of crossings really has shown what works. One is exclusionary fencing. So you don't give them options, right? You want to lead them and we're probably going to put miles of fencing that they're not going to have other options. They're going to have to use this crossing. Also, you plan the landscaping. We know animals like to travel in grades or in creek beds or you name it. So you sort of grade the vegetation to sort of lead them. But I will say, I just think the animals themselves, Liberty especially, my prediction is they're going to use it. That ribbon cuts, it is going to be a highway because what we have, again, that's a little different from other crossings in more remote areas is that funnel. Animals are funneled here already and they're already trying to use it. Other areas, it can take the animals some time to find because they're in remote areas. They have lots of options. But even those areas, I will say, I visited a crossing in Colorado out in the middle of nowhere. That one, literally, when they finished, the deer started using it a couple days later. There's some crossings up in Washington State where they had a series of crossings they're building, one that was still under construction, the deer were trying to get across. So I think the animals themselves are really the best teachers and and they're smart. They're gonna they're gonna seek it out. And and look at someone like P22. He's one of the lucky ones and most of them don't make it across, but they are seeking out constantly safe passages, wildlife, large and small. I mean, they, they just, as much as roadkill gets hit, it's almost like they don't have a choice and they don't have the skills we do to sometimes look both ways, but they really do want safe options. So I think they seek it out themselves. Yeah. And Wow. My, my, my head is, my brain anyway, is just spinning with a whole bunch of different thoughts. <laughs> He's like the whole, one of the major drivers for this was the genetic isolation. And you mentioned that's true for many other species as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, if you're isolated and trapped by a freeway, then if a disaster comes along, a, a wildfire or something like that, you're also trapped. You can't escape nearly as easily. But the thing that you said that really piqued my interest was even the birds are having issues with becoming isolated And I had to think about that for a moment. Maybe you can elaborate, but the first vision that you think of when you hear a bird is like a a free-flying animal that that has a wide range, but that's not always the case. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you saw and found with respect to genetic isolation in birds? Yeah. I give a lot of talks now on thinking about connectivity differently. Everything from how your backyard fence or lights might impede wildlife movement. So I think, and it's again, this has been a learning process for me, but we tend to think of birds as, all right, yeah, they're fine, right? They can get anywhere. I mean, birds get killed on freeways too, especially a 
10 lane freeway. I mean, it is not the easiest to navigate, but we also have birds like quail that are species that use the ground a lot, or, or again, birds that don't travel. I mean, there are birds that migrate thousands of miles, but you have species that don't make those large journeys as well, right? That are, are a little more localized in the, the Santa Monica mountains. But yeah, I mean, especially the, the ground species, I mean, quails fly, but they travel a lot on the ground. A quail's not going to make a grand flight across the 101, right? And same with the smaller species. It's not that they need to travel long distances, but how do you get genetic diversity? It's sort of, here's a population that overlaps with this population that overlaps Mm -hmm. with this, that freeway cuts it off. But I will say, even for the birds that can successfully, let's say, or at least try the 101, and obviously there's a fair amount, there's been studies that they actually will change their flight paths to fly over these crossings because, again, it, it's they want the green space. They don't want to have to deal with cars or the wind patterns or the noise or the lights. The lights affect bird migration significantly. Dr. Travis Longcore has done some really incredible studies. And in fact, we're designing the crossing to block the light pollution from the freeway and the noise pollution. Fraser Schilling has done a lot of noise studies that is really helping to inform crossings. And he did a noise study at Liberty. The noise is something we have to, uh, that's part of the design that again, other crossings don't have to contend with. You look at a lot of crossings, they've kind of a chain link fence to just prevent the wildlife from getting in the road. We have to design a vegetated sound wall because of the noise and light pollution that would encourage them to cross. Having the noise of 300,000 cars a day is not going to encourage them to cross. Mm -hmm. It's not going to make them feel safe. Yeah, it is interesting to me what does block animal connectivity and bird migrations, butterfly migrations. I'm on the one-on-one and I see poor butterflies trying to navigate it. it. It's heartbreaking. These freeways are a barrier in ways we you know, don't think about. It's not just the large roadkill. I recall a couple of years ago taking a trip down to Death Valley. And in fact, it was part of, it was part of that ecology class that the teacher who recommended your book <laughs> was leading. Oh, wow. And, mm-hmm. and there was a discussion that we had about how looking at the grills of cars was a good way to study insects because so many insects are hit by cars and, and the mortality rates uh, are, are so high. So that's a really good point too, that I think often gets overlooked. Yeah, no, insect biodiversity. I mean, we did used to get way more insects on our windshield when I was growing up and you don't now. So, yep. And the other thought that came to mind as you were describing the bird situation is this concept of an ecological trap where like the birds that live in the isolated area, they don't really have a need to leave. Like, for example, I'm thinking like Buick's wrens or some of the small birds that stay in a cluster of shrubs their whole lives, basically, and they have everything they need right there. But yeah, the genetic diversity aspect comes into play. So they don't really have a desire to go leave, but now they're only breeding with the other birds that are in that space. And uh, yeah, that's part of the nuance of the problem space. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what the thing with the smaller critters. It's not that you need to get a lizard, a Western fence lizard, to travel hundreds of miles, right? They're going to they're gonna remain in their little small space. But if they're just breeding with the same animals that 
are only in that small space. Now you have a problem mm-hmm. of, okay, that genetic, the genetic diversity is lacking because you don't have any diversity coming in because that freeway is blocking. So, and yeah. then if those birds are also responsible for seed dispersal or other things, and yeah, then it just this trickle down effect. It's back to John Muir. Everything is hitched <laughs> t- together. Everything's hitched. And you bring up again what was eye opening for me in this project. I had never thought about again plants needing movement. They do. Mm-hmm. And in you're right, whether it be from animals, even mountain lions will disperse seeds because they're eating animals that eat seeds. And right. I think of like up here in Yosemite, I'm, I'm working on this book on Yosemite wildlife. And one of my favorite animals is the Clark's nutcracker because they don't hibernate and they, they have seven to 10,000 seed caches all over the high Sierra. I mean, they're probably responsible for all the white bark pine forests you see. And that's the same thing. If you impede movement of birds who are dispersing these seeds or any animal, I mean, all animals disperse seeds. You, you know, you as a human get those annoying seeds on your pants and you're part of the, or pollinators, right? So if you're a monarch butterfly, you ain't crossing the 101 or if you're a bee. So it is all connected. And Mm -hmm. I think that again, the good news is we now know this and we're now thinking about wholesale systems and how humans can, even in these improbable places, at least improve and see how we can get back to connectivity that we need. But yeah, we have a lot of work to do. (laughs) So that maybe is a good lead in. I assume that going in and retrofitting this crossing over the 101 is a lot more expensive than if something like that had been built from the ground up. Do you see any initiatives that are promoting these activities, like any any groups or resources that maybe some of my listeners, if they're interested, can go take a look at and support? Absolutely. I think Louis Sagan just did an article for the LA Times on the crossing and, and the work we've done and featured my tattoo. <laughs> but he hit Lewis is just an incredible environmental writer. He had a great phrase in there about how it's this time's probably going to be known to future people as the age of wildlife crossings. And wildlife crossings are nothing new, but they I don't think we're in the public consciousness as they are now. And what we're seeing is This is one of those, like in a world where we can't agree on anything, most people agree on this. Most environmental problems are hard to like climate change, which we work on like, oh my God, there's no magic bullet there. You know what? There's a magic bullet in this one. It is put the crossing up and the animals get across the road. And it's also something really concrete, right? You see a structure. So I think most people don't like roadkill. They love wildlife. And so, yeah, no, public support is incredibly high for these wildlife crossings. It's not that there aren't people against, but overwhelmingly people support these. Liberty Cannon, for example, when we went out for public comment as part of Caltrans environmental process, it was like 8,804 and 15 against. I mean, that's unheard of in public (laughs) projects. Usually it's like 50-50. So I think it's great that the public's really embrace these as something that we can do. It's a problem that we can really solve. And what you're seeing now is this is translating into action. And Liberty Cannon is a great example. I mean, we have almost 5,000 donors from all over the world donating to this, not just saying we like it, but donating. Everything from Wallace Annenberg's generous $25 million donations to, you know, I all size donation counts to Governor Newsom and Secretary Crowfoot putting not just money for liberty in the budget, but last year's budget, there was $60 million to improve connectivity. I know California wants to be a leader in this sphere. And, and indeed, there are projects all across the state. I sit on a wildlife crossing working group. There's projects, maybe not as far as long as liberty, but in the queue all over the state that are up and coming. So, I think we really are on the cusp of just this 
surgeons. And I love that Liberty Canyon is kind of, at least for California, like this, there are crossings in California. Most of them are underpasses, but like this big project that 300 to 400,000 people a day are going to see, right? So that's inspiring. Uh, Most of these crossings are in areas very few people see. So I love that we're going to have this like wildlife crossing sort of immersion for a huge amount of the population that will spur more. But you're also seeing federally, again, other states, Wyoming's been doing crossings for a long time. They're a model. They're mainly dealing with, again, these vast ungulate migrations. We don't really have those in the Sierra a little bit. And other states have done it. But you're now seeing a federal embrace. My organization, the National Wildlife Federation, was key in $350 million now in the federal budget for wildlife crossings. So yeah, I think to Lewis's wonderful phrase, this is the age of wildlife crossing. The science is now there. We have decades of it. The public support is there. And now you have government putting up the investments. So I I think these are going to just start popping up in so many places. That's really exciting. And for all the things you've mentioned, the article that you referenced in the LA Times, I'll I'll link to those, of course, in the show notes. For, for people wanting to learn more about wildlife crossings or maybe even just mountain lions for that matter, mm-hmm. do you have any references or pointers that, that might be helpful just more in the science or the ecology behind these things? Yeah, boy, God, I mean, you're looking at my, the viewers can't see it, but my bookshelf, <laughs> there's just so much. You know, when I like to start people off, like uh, there's a lot of hard science books, but one of my favorite ways to, to for people to sort of introduce to the mountain lions, the National Park Service in the Santa Monica Mountains has this great website, Puma Profiles. And we did some trading cards. I wrote some trading cards based on some of these biographies for the Save Valley Cougars project. But if you go to that website, you can link to, I forget the URL, but you can link to it in there. You know, you can read the biographies of some of the cats we've referenced. We're now up to uh, over a hundred now, which is amazing. You know, this is a 20 year study. So some of them have passed on, but I think that's a great entry point into mountain lions and, and mountain lion science. So the biographies come with some background, but also some science. What happened to this cat? Why is it significant genetically? Things like that on wildlife crossings. And then, yeah, oh my God, there's a ton of books. I'm looking at my bookshelf here. If you want the hard science, Cougar, edited by Maurice Hornerker and Sharon Negri, that that has a, a real great accumulation of papers. There's Heart of a Lion, talks about the, the lion that hiked all the way to Connecticut by William Stoltberg. If you're interested in more sort of storytelling combined with science, the Cougar Alm, I mean, there's just, uh, there's no shortage of books. I think, you know, that's a good entry point. On wildlife crossings, Ben Goldfarb, he's amazing. He has a book that he's working on, but it's not out yet. But if you follow him on Twitter or Uh, He publishes a lot of great articles on crossings, but there's a couple institutes or folks dedicated to wildlife crossing science you can look at if you, you know, that have a great clearinghouse for papers or research or just links to projects. One is ARC, Animal Road Crossings. You can go to their website and they actually help with Liberty Canyon. They helped with two design workshops to help review the Caltrans plans and ensure obviously that the crossing elements were there. So they're incredible. There's the International Conference on Ecology and Transportation, IOSET. That is a 
biennial conference. People can attend. I mean, the talks are wonderful, and but that's also a good clearinghouse. And that actually is has been organized the last few years by another resource I'd send you to that is California-based. Fraser Schilling uh, heads up the UC Davis Road Ecology Center. He has a lot of great information in his published papers, especially he had a great one around the pandemic, how the Obviously, we were driving less in these shutdown areas, how that really decreased roadkill significantly, obviously, but still that that pointed to how our driving really impacts. Mm-hmm. So he's a great resource. And then the Western Transportation Institute, Rob Amet and others has some good resources as well. But we're really looking forward to to and Goldfarb books. And I'm sure there's a lot I'm leaving out asking on the fly. So I'll send you links to other books and resources that folks can do. I mean, I think that the great news is there's no shortage out there of information either on mountain lions or on uh, wildlife crossings for folks to to access. That's great. And thank you for that. And there have been a lot of sort of common themes with past guests as we've been talking today. Ben was actually mm-hmm. a previous guest. Oh, that's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, no, Ben's, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and of course that was more beaver oriented, but I do, I am connected with him on Twitter and you'll get equal parts beaver and road ecology if you follow him on twitter yeah and oh my god his book on beavers alone is worth reading even i mean aside from the wildlife crossing book coming out it's such a great book so as we wrap up here kind of a a big question that i like to ask my guests and, and that's what has nature taught you about living life that's a great question michael i think especially during this pandemic, but a little before it. I mean, I've had some some pretty pretty devastating personal challenges the last few years. And throughout my whole life, what nature's really done for me is give me that sort of peaceful place where I can recover and just find solace and find healing, I think is what she's always done. Even as a little girl, you know, I remember if I got a bad grade or something, I'd go into the woods and wander and always feel better. But I think what it's done, I'd say in my later adult life and God, I'm now in my fifties is teach me about resiliency but I'm working on this book on Yosemite wildlife. And I've, I'm a, what did somebody call me? Uh, the biggest cheerleader for Yosemite. It is for me, it, it's my North star. I wander in it every chance I get and have been doing so for 30 years. And some of my favorite animals up there and what fascinated me are the ones that dwell in the Alpine country. So 10,000 feet and above. I mean, this is harsh living. This is not easy living. You're talking snow most of the year. You're talking even in the summer, it's cold. It's there's very little vegetation, obviously, because you're above tree line. Yet these animals like the pika, oh my God, a tiny little thing, right? The size of a potato, like lords over these vast, huge landscapes and makes it on, and and doesn't hibernate, like literally survives the winter under snow, eating dried grass (laughs) that it left out in the summer for hay. And And up there, it's not just snow. It can be 10 feet (laughs) of snow. Exactly. I mean, or these butterflies. I've become fascinated in the last uh, five years with butterflies, especially again, alpine butterflies. These are butterflies literally soaring over passes at 12,000 feet and landing there and mating. And some of them with tattered wings and still going on. And yeah, because butterflies' lives are really short and they don't grow back wings. So if they get injured or yet they still keep going. And the Yosemite toad, who we don't think of frogs or toads as living on snow. This I this toad lives at high elevations and literally will walk a mile, sometimes over snow to get to their breeding grounds. So I think is, at least for me, I, I, you just sort of take 
the safety of life for granted. And I think the pandemic really upended that. But the animal world doesn't. And I think they their world can be upended at any moment and they keep going. I mean, a weasel shows up in the pica granite. They they got to defend it. They can't predict that. They can't control that. And I think if a butterfly can fly over 12,000 feet with tattered wings, that to me is an inspiration. We can do it. We got mm. this too. And despite, I mean, these things aren't easy, but I think the natural world can show us in some respects, they have less choices than we do. But on the other hand, they try to make it through some challenges that I think I can't even conceive of. So they, that's what nature has done for me is just teach me about resiliency and what it takes to live. I think that, again, we get a little lulled into a false sense of security with our modern living. And, but in some respects, we haven't left that natural world. I mean, we Not even in some respects, we haven't left it. We just forget. <laughs> we forget we have. And uh, so I think that's what nature's really done for me. And you're right. The pandemic sort of outlines what we do control and don't control. I think, I, I think the, it is a great example of how our thinking us separate or distinct or that we can control the natural world. It's just so false. Mm -hmm. The virus doesn't follow the rules of technology or the rules of engineering. It follows the natural world rules. And getting back to the larger point of this talk, the lack of connectivity and the lack of habitat is what is fueling pandemics. So if we don't start paying attention and getting back to what is needed to make the natural world hold, which we are squarely in, not a separate piece of, or climate change, right? I mean, look at those fires recently in Colorado. That is 130 mile an hour winds and a wildfire in December. I mean, not me in the Sierra, the wildfire, I mean, the fire regime, is, they're not even wildfires. I hate calling them that. These are human caused firestorms. Again, because we sort of thought we could control or disconnect from the natural world. So on a hopeful note is that I think what's great is the natural world can tell us what we can do to fix this because they have the solutions. It's just so reconnecting to me is a very hopeful. Yeah. I think Wallace Annenberg has this beautiful quote about the, the wildlife crossing that this is an environmental rejuvenation. So I guess that what wildlife does for me is rejuvenate me. And I am seeing that as starting to take a trend with other people that a rejuvenation, not just around that we need to fix these problems, but also personal rejuvenation. It's great for reset, for sure. And you mentioned your upcoming wildlife book. Can you tell me a little bit about that and any other upcoming projects that you're working on that you'd like to share? Yeah. You know, people keep asking me, oh my God, so what's next after the wildlife crossing breaks ground? First, like the work doesn't end. In fact, in some respects, I think it gets a little busier, but I certainly, it'll get a little less of sort of pressure, right? To get this thing to break ground. So I'm, I actually am looking forward to having a life again. And one of the projects I've been wanting to work on actually for decades now, started getting serious about it now that this groundbreaking is in sight is I always wanted to write a book on Yosemite wildlife. And the last book solely dedicated to Yosemite wildlife, not that there haven't been excellent books that include mention of wildlife or, or field guides or stuff, but that was really written focused on Yosemite wildlife was in 1924, the famous Grinnell and Stora book, which is a Bible. It's in my library, but Nobody had ever revisited that, which sounds weird, right? Even I thought there'd be something mm -hmm. out there, right? But indeed, Yosemite, most people focus on the rocks, right? Or <laughs> the waterfalls, that's the scenery. My partner reached out to this photographer who actually had written an essay for his 
photography book on the nature of Yosemite, Rob Hirsch, he's amazing. And I said, would you like to partner up with me? And he was on board. And the Yosemite Conservancy, uh, who I used to work for a long time ago, we gave him a proposal and they were like, yes. So I am really excited to be writing this. And it's it's not, there'll be lots of science in it, but you know my style, Michael, from When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors. We're going to lead with what's wondrous and amazing and the stories of, behind Yosemite wildlife. And uh, so I'm just like over the moon, although it's, it's a lot of work, but I've been in the Yosemite Research Library uncovering such beautiful things, old wildlife observation cards from the 30s. And so that's one thing, but that's my personal life. My job it's, we're going to make more of these projects go. I mean, we're not stopping with Liberty Canyon. Liberty Canyon is the, obviously to me, the biggest obstacle in Southern California, but Dr. Winston Vickers is having the same issue with the population of cats he studied down in Orange County. I just started advising with this project on 395. It's led by Kate Rodriguez of Caltrans and have just been helping them. And they just got their first big grant from the Wildlife Conservation Board. It's amazing. This is a really cool project, A, because it's in the Sierra. So it's in, you know, my backyard and the place I love. But also I said earlier in this podcast, we don't have the vast ungulate migrations. A lot of these Rocky Mountain wildlife crossings do. And that's true. We just don't. A lot of the crossings in California, I think it's important to point out, these aren't historic thousand year corridors. They're all we have left where animals can cross the road. But this one on 395 actually is the mule deer, historic mule deer migration is at least one thing they need to solve there. Other animals are getting hit. So I'm really excited about that one as well. And then also just radiating out from Liberty Canyon, the National Park Service Again, they just do such great science. They've identified sort of the next priorities, like 118, 126, and even further down on the 101s. There's more crossings in my future. I just want to get as many of these built as possible. I think the good news is we started out with the, the heaviest, you know, the hardest and, and most challenging projects. So it all gets easier from here mm-hmm. in some respects. But so, yeah, those are that's what I'm excited. And just being able to sleep more. Yeah. <laughs> I'm also excited about being able to nap more after Liberty Break. Yeah, that can be a project too, just making time for self-care. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So mm-hmm. how can how can people keep up to date then with your work and your progress? Are, are you on social media or you have uh, specific websites you want to point people at? Yeah. I mean, first of all, if you're interested in the Wallace Annenberg Wildlife Crossing and staying up to date, uh, savelacougars.org. You can sign up for our email list. You can follow P22 on Facebook, P22 Mountain Line of Hollywood. Those are two good places to plug in with the Wildlife Crossing project specifically. For me, you can, uh, yeah, Facebook. I All my posts are public. If you're a Facebook person, I do a lot of wildlife posts. Same thing with Twitter. I think I'm Beth Pratt one on Facebook and Beth Pratt on Twitter and Yosemite Bethy on Instagram. I'm really easy to find if you just Google Beth Pratt Cougar or Mountain Lion. I also have a website, bethpratt.com, and you can sign up for email lists there if you want. I don't spam. It's all coming personally from me. I'll talk about wildlife sightings I've had or things like that. But yeah, all my social accounts, I think Michael really, once in a while I'll get political, but a lot of just celebrating the wildlife I see in the wild world around us. So that's a good place to plug in. And I I think I've missed a few of those myself. So I'm going to have to go back and make sure I'm following you appropriately on all the different platforms. I'd say Facebook right now is where I do most because it's just a little easier to share a lot of the Instagram is all wildlife. I only literally almost just always put my best wildlife photos on there. Uh, 
And then, yeah, Twitter, I do. I'm, I'm on Twitter a lot, too. It's a little harder to share in bulk and do the sort of you're limited by characters, but I'm there sharing stuff, too. And I just wanted to point out, too, you mentioned P22's account, which is another reason why P22 is so amazing. He's perhaps mm-hmm. the only mountain lion who has taken to social media. I, I, I think there's a couple, there's a couple more, you're right. Def- yeah. He's de- oh, he's definitely, the- he's, he's got like 16,000 followers. Yeah. He's and- an influencer for sure. Don't tell anybody, but it's me. Oh. I'll tell you, if you talk about my favorite part ever in my career, what was the most favorite thing and the, the best thing I, is being P22 on Facebook. <laughs> I now have, it started out as me. I now have this in, incredible um, person, Tony, who also helps out with her uh, her company, Humanity Communications Collective, because I can't do it all anymore, but I still am posting as him. That is the most favorite thing I've ever done in my career because people talk to him. Oh my God. I mean, you know, I'll post something and be like, hi, Peach 22 or we love, you know, I mean, they, they ask him questions, they make jokes. That's, and, and then having to post as a mountain lion, like having to get into a mountain lion's head. And then actually the funnest part is obviously if you're Facebook or Twitter, like you have, you have to switch accounts and sometimes I forget. So I'll do a mountain lion post on my own personal. And people are like, Why is she talking about eating deer? Or so that gets fun as well. <laughs> I could see that happening really easily. Yeah. I, I have to say though, I'm a little disappointed. I, I thought it was really P22 sending those. Sorry. Um. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. It's hard to break it to people, but he has uh, given me agency to speak. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're one with P22 at this point. Yes. <laughs> it's really been a lot of fun talking with you today. And as is always the case in these discussions, it's, it feels like we only scratched the surface, but at the same time, I'm walking away feeling really fulfilled by everything we did cover. So thank you so much again for making time for this. And I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope the listeners enjoy it. Oh, Michael, no, it's a pleasure to talk with you. I mean, I think I just, I love people like you who really want to understand conservation and you just, you have such good questions. You obviously really dive into the source material, but more importantly, I think you want animals to thrive. It's evident. So thanks for having me on. And I've just been also the background where we've been talking of that beautiful eagle, golden eagle you have over your shoulder. It's like you actually had one. So thanks for having that too. But no, thanks for having me. (laughs) Yeah. It almost looks like it's sitting on my shoulder. So yeah, it does. It really (laughs) does. But no, thanks for being you. I mean, I, I always say this every time I do an interview, it's the storytelling. It is enabling wildlife to have a voice through people like me and you that get something like a Liberty Canyon crossing built. Science will only take you so far. You need the science, but the public will is all about empowering voices, telling the stories of these wildlife, and that's media platforms like yours. Thanks for focusing on conservation and wildlife. Wow. What an amazing achievement and an amazing person. Thank you again to Beth, and I hope that you'll follow Beth and the progress on the Wallace-Annenberg Wildlife Crossing. And one more note, if you enjoyed today's conversation, I invite you to check out a few past episodes with some related content. In episode number 20, I interviewed Dr. Yiwei Wong, and as part of our discussion included the Puma project research that she performed. The episode previous to this one with Dr. Stuart Rice discussed the same US 101 highway, albeit about 400 miles north of LA, and its impact on the Bay Checker Spot butterfly. In that episode, we discussed a little bit about wildlife crossings and the importance of connectivity. And lastly, past guest, Dr. Marav Vonshak from episode number 7 and 31 has been documenting a tragic ongoing roadkill of newts in an area much in need of a proper wildlife crossing. See her work at bioblitz.club slash newts, N-E-W-T-S. Thanks for sticking through the entire episode. If you made it this far, I hope that it means that you enjoyed it. If so, please spread the word and share this episode with three friends or groups that you think would enjoy it too. 
As for today's episode, let me know. Did I miss anything? Was there a topic I should have covered? Let me know at podcast at jumpstartnature.com or DM me on any of my social accounts. I'll do my best to answer your questions. You can find me at Nature's Archive, one word, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. I also share photography, nature stories, and much more on those accounts, so you can follow just to stay in touch, too. And despite being called crazy by numerous friends and colleagues, last year I left my tech career behind to start Jumpstart Nature, which Nature's Archive is now part of. For the sake of myself, my family, and the planet, I need to make this work. So please also consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash jumpstartnature. I offer some exclusive content and perks, and you can start donations as low as $4 a month. Lastly, please also check out our latest creation. It's the Jumpstart Nature podcast. We just completed our pilot season, where each episode reveals an unseen, surprising, or misunderstood nature topic with the help of experts and our host, Griff Griffith. It's entertaining and inspiring, and even reached number three on the Apple Nature podcast charts. There's much more on our roadmap, but we need your support. So check out jumpstartnature.com for more details. Thank you.